Thomas Jefferson made a salient point saying, quote, We do not have government by the majority. We have government by the majority who participate. It's like that guy was full of good quotes or something. Democracy is far and away the most common form of government in the world today. Only about 4% of countries today do not hold elections. In 27 countries, voting is actually compulsory, though the vast majority, 85%, leave it up to people to decide whether they want to participate or not. However, as the playwright Tom Stoppard said, quote, it's not the voting that's democracy, it's the counting. Of course, if there's a system of some kind, many people will try and find a way to game that system, and elections are no different. Apart from moral considerations and concepts like duty, it's really just a numbers game, and whoever gets the highest number officially registered wins. And sometimes, one side or the other tries to stack the deck in their favor, or if it doesn't go their way, cry foul. So we'll look at some of the more egregious cases of fraud accusations in the United States from 1792 to 1982 to see just how often actual voter fraud happens, plus some of the weirdness engendered by the American Electoral College, a somewhat rushed overview of the political parties that have existed in the American political landscape, perhaps serving as a reminder that the Democrats and Republicans that we think of today really didn't come about until much later. Today's Republicans starting off wholly around the topic of abolition, but then shifting in the late 60s as one opposed to civil rights for American blacks. And today's Democrats really starting off with FDR's New Deal. And reminders that, in the land of the free, race is very often at the forefront of everything. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, Electoral, Electoral Collage, Collage. Voter, Voter Fraud, fraud and, and Other, other shenanigans. shenanigans. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast, and if you like what we do, you may donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page, which is much appreciated. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. To the thief. Election controversy happens just about everywhere. Between 1991 and 2021, for example, there were at least 50 iffy elections in African nations in a period of just 30 years, 59 in Asia between 1986 and 2021, which is a 35-year period. Europe's had its own share of troubles, especially since the year 2000, as have South and Central America. Canada and Mexico are not without their hiccups, and there were some raised eyebrows in Fiji in 2014 and Samoa in 2021. But the all-time winners just got to be the United States, 
of course. Partly because it's just so darn big, but only partly. The most recent controversy is the insistence of some MAGA maniacs and Donald Trump himself that he actually won the 2020 election, a narrative that continues to survive despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. True believers think they see the evil, commie, fascist, alien-loving, pedophile Democrats finally ramping up to initiate the new world order at long, long last. More sober-minded people still find themselves wondering just how widespread voter fraud is after all. And politicians of several stripes see this environment as one in which maybe they can get some truly restrictive laws in place, limiting just who can and cannot vote, and so they can have more control over the results. But this is hardly the first time the country's been in this situation. The American electoral process has been rife with controversy and shenanigans almost since its very beginnings. A previous episode about October's surprise discusses 18 previous presidential elections, so we're not going to go into those here. And we don't need to because there are plenty more to choose from. And it's not just presidential elections either. The 1792 New York Governor's Race. George Washington, the first U.S. president, advised against political parties entirely, but he was ignored. The first party of note were the Federalists, basically formed by Alexander Hamilton and very much for centralized government, a central bank, and access to the corridors of power, really by wealthy men. In opposition, there was Thomas Jefferson's Anti-Federalists, who would later rebrand themselves as the Democratic Republican Party. They were basically against anything that the Federalists were for. So, they wanted small central government, local banks, limited access to politicians by the wealthy, and so on. These two together, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, or Democratic Republicans, would make up what's known as the First Party System in the United States, which lasted from 1792 until 1824. The governor's race for the state of New York in 1792 was between Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Federalist John Jay, and the incumbent George Clinton, the first ever elected governor of New York, who had basically been governor during the Revolutionary War as well. Clinton had been a Federalist in the beginning, but then changed directions, becoming a Democratic-Republican. After the election, there were some problems in three counties. The New York State Constitution says quite clearly that ballots must be delivered to the Secretary of State by, quote, the sheriff or his deputy. But in Otsego County, the person who delivered them was Sheriff Melanchthon Smith, whose term had expired, though he was kind of just unofficially filling in until someone got around to appointing a successor. In Clinton County, the man who brought the ballots didn't have written deputization papers, and in Tioga County, a clerk delivered them. So, the question arose, should the ballots from these three counties be counted or not? The matter got referred to state senators who formed a canvassing committee. By a vote of 7-4, to four, they said, no, these three counties' votes should be thrown out. As a result, the incumbent George Clinton won the governorship by 108 votes. But had those discarded votes been included, Jay, the Federalist challenger, would have won by 400 votes. Of course, the Federalist shouted that Clinton had stolen the election and the committee had been partisan, and yet the result stood. The 1824, the 1824 presidential, presidential election. election. Corrupt, Corrupt bargain. bargain. After the nearly disastrous presidential election of 1800, the Federalist Party kind of fell apart. 
1824 national election, there were four candidates, all Democratic Republicans. Speaker of the House Henry Clay of Kentucky, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford of Georgia, U.S. Senator from Tennessee Andrew Jackson, and then Secretary of State John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts. Jackson, who today adorns the $20 bill, was the hero of the War of 1812, and one of his many nicknames was the Hero of New Orleans, which is the city where, as a brevet Major General, he won a big battle against Major General Sir Edward Packingham in January 1815. He was also called Old Hickory, because he was tough like Old Hickory would by those who admired him, but he was also known as Jackass by those who disliked him. Rather than be offended, he leaned into the insult, and the donkey became the mascot of the party. He was also very much behind removing Native Americans from their lands, earning him the nickname Sharp Knife by the Cherokee people and the less poetic Indian Killer from white expansionists. He won the popular vote by 39,000 votes, carrying 12 of the 24 states at the time, getting him 99 electoral votes. Adams got only 84 electoral votes, Crawford only got 41, and Clay came in last with a paltry 27. Alas, though, no one got the majority of electoral votes. 126 is what you needed at the time to get the job done. And so, in a repeat of the 1800 election, the decision had to go to the House of Representatives. As the last place runner, Clay was immediately discarded, so now the decision was between Crawford, Jackson, and Adams. Crawford seemed unlikely to be chosen since it had come out that he had suffered a rather bad stroke the previous year due to some bad medicine given to him by his doctor. Weirdly, both Adams and Jackson had chosen South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun as their vice presidential running mate, so it seemed that Calhoun was going to get the job no matter who became president. Many who had supported Clay decided that they would switch over to Adams, giving him the edge, and after many weeks of cigar smoking and deal cutting, Adams took the prize, making Clay Secretary of State for his help. Andrew Old Hickory Jackson was furious, calling it a corrupt bargain. He resigned as senator in protest, and many in the party felt that he had been shortchanged. This caused a massive rift in the party, which would eventually lead to its fracturing. Nullifiers and anti-Masons in the 1820s and 30s. After the events of that presidential election, the so-called Second Party System came in, lasting from 1828 to 1854. At this point, the only real political party left on the field, the Democratic Republicans, broke apart under the stress of the 1824 election. Jackson took his bunch and, along with Martin Van Buren, formed the National Democratic Party, taking that donkey as their symbol, while many in the Adams-Clay camp formed the Anti-Jacksonian Party, which were also called the Republicans. Former Federalists found a home in the Republicans as well, but there was still more infighting. In 1828, Jackson challenged Adams for the presidency and won, keeping Calhoun on as vice president. Clay ran against him in 1832, as did John Floyd of the newly formed South Carolina Nullifier Party. Nullifiers were pro-states' rights, pro-slavery, and said that they could nullify any federal laws that they wanted within their borders, thus the name. 
There was a fourth candidate, William Wirt, part of another new party called the Anti-Masonic Party. These guys had formed after the disappearance of William Morgan, a well-known Mason, who had then turned whistleblower against some of the backroom deals going on in Masonic lodges and at meetings. Well, clearly, he was got rid of by those evil Freemasons who were mainly just rich guys, and so the Anti-Masonic Party was an odd mix of anti-elitism and conspiracy thinking. But Jackson won the 1828 election with 54.2% of the vote, Clay coming in second with 37.4% of the vote. In 1833, many Southerners started getting riled up about high tariffs on imported goods. South Carolina, seat of the nullifiers, decided that they didn't need to pay those fees. After all, they could just ignore any laws that they chose to. But President Jackson said, oh yes, you do need to pay. He got Congress to pass what's known as the Force Bill, which allowed him to send in federal troops to enforce federal law in South Carolina. But before things came to a bloody head, South Carolina backed down, and the nullification crisis was over. Clay, who had been the nullifier candidate, had actually been okay with the tariff rates, but he really didn't like Jackson's strong-arm tactics and moved for the U.S. Senate to censure him. Jackson was really not a fan of central banks, so he formed what were known as pet banks, state-chartered banks that would hold federal deposits. And Clay did not like this either, saying that these were illegal and that Jackson was basically behaving like a king. Anti-Jackson people from the National Republicans or Anti-Jacksonian Party, Democrats who didn't like what he was doing who'd left, Anti-Masons and Calhounites all got together under Clay to form a new party called the Whig Party. This name was taken from a British anti-monarchy movement. The Whigs would last for 23 years and be one of the main proponents behind the idea of manifest destiny, but would eventually fracture over the issue of slavery. 1838, 1838, the New, the New Jersey, Jersey Broad Seal War, War and, and Cooping. The first major battle between the Democrats and the Whigs would occur in New Jersey during congressional elections in 1838. This has come to be known as the Broad Seal War. The elections for the six New Jersey seats had been very close and were hotly contested with each side claiming victory. So, as the 26th Congress opened for their first session on December 2nd, 1839, 12 people showed up saying that they should be sat as representatives, six Democrats and six Whigs. Each group had a copy of the Great Seal of the State, also known as the Broad Seal, but only the Whigs had signed commissions from the governor, who, by the way, was also a member of the Whig Party. And the Democrats had authorization only from the Secretary of State, who, by the way, was a Democrat. The Democrats in the House of Representatives, who would lose the majority if all six Whigs were seated, accused their opponents of election fraud, and so they only sat one of them. An investigation was launched into Democratic claims that they had actually won the election, and it turned out that in two counties, Cumberland and Middlesex, the clerks there had suppressed ballots in towns that they knew would favor the Democrats. And so, on February 28th, the five remaining Democratic representatives-elect were officially seated in the House. The Whigs' attempted ploy had only managed to get them one seat. Needless to say, things like this did nothing to help the relations between the two political parties, and there seemed to be something of a win-at-any-cost attitude, especially from the Whigs. Communication was different back then, so it's difficult to determine everything that went on in the back rooms of the young nation come election time, which meant that rumor, innuendo, and conspiracy 
were very much a part of the thinking. When famed American writer Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore on October 7, 1849, at the fairly young age of 40, many thought something was amiss. Sure, he'd been known to have somewhat poor health, and he was a notorious, extremely heavy drinker and drug user. But when a man found him, quote, in great distress in the wee hours of April 3rd at Ryan's Tavern, a messenger was dispatched to fetch his friend Joseph Snodgrass and his doctor Joseph Moran. Snodgrass said Poe was, quote, beastly drunk, and the writer looked, quote, repulsive, unwashed, empty eyes, dirty, ill-fitting clothing, quite unlike him. Dr. Morin took him to what was essentially a drunk tank to dry him out. Poe was having a hard time being coherent, but at least twice he managed to get out that the clothes he was wearing weren't his, and once or twice he said something about being out the night before with someone named Reynolds. Some people thought maybe he meant Jeremiah Reynolds, an editor and explorer friend of Poe's, while others thought maybe it had been Judge Henry Reynolds, who had been overseeing polls taking place at Ryan's Tavern. Poe's condition, however, did not improve, he did not become more coherent, and he died the morning of the 7th. Almost immediately, there were rumors and speculation as to what had been the cause of his death. Friend Snodgrass, who was a temperance guy, said that Poe had simply drunk himself to death, said in that kind of superior snotty attitude the temperance people had. Others thought, you know, maybe he finally just managed to kill himself after all he had tried before. But others thought perhaps he had been the victim of cooping. Cooping was an illegal practice that had become, sadly, increasingly commonplace, where citizens were grabbed off the street by gang members working on behalf of a particular political candidate. The victim would be held in a room, which was nicknamed the coop, forced to drink enormous amounts of alcohol to make them incoherent, and then threatened with violence unless they voted for the candidate in question. The victim would be given a variety of disguises like uh, hat, glasses, fake beard, and so on, and sent round to the polling station several times, all the time being watched by the cooping gang members. Could this be what happened to Poe, some wondered? Baltimore was especially famous for cooping, a practice that would later extend to getting recruits through press gangs for the Civil War. 1855, 1855. Bleeding Kansas. In the years leading up to 1855, the Whigs had done well enough, managing to get four U.S. presidents in the White House, but they soon fell apart as the issue of slavery came more and more to the forefront of national discourse. As the mid-1850s approached, the national debate about slavery came to a head with the Democratic-led 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act. This created two new territories to the West to expand the national territory and would make a transcontinental railroad possible. The 1820 Missouri Compromise had said that no new territories that had slavery would be allowed north of latitude 3630 north, basically the top part of the chimney of Texas is the line we're talking about, except for Missouri. Both these new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, were north of that line and so slavery would be forbidden. But this did not sit well with Southern leaders. Some of them suggested repealing the Missouri Compromise and adopting the idea of popular sovereignty, which would basically mean that if a majority of the people in a state or territory approved slavery through a vote, then slavery would be legal there. Kind of a one-theme version of the nullifier argument. 
Abolitionists who wanted slavery banned everywhere in the United States were very much opposed to this idea. A group of anti-slavery people got together and formed the Republican Party, no relation really to the earlier Republican Party, for the express purpose of preventing slavery from being set up in these two new territories. Many people worried this was a direct provocation that would lead to armed conflict, and some political cartoonists started using an elephant to represent this new party, since seeing the elephant, quote-unquote, was soldier slang for being in combat. For now, this new Republican Party also had attracted some Democrats who were against slavery, as well as the remnants of the Whigs and a bunch of smaller parties who had all decided that they would hitch their star to the issue of abolition. This led to a six-year conflict known as Bleeding Kansas, which some historians have called the tragic prelude to the American Civil War. Many of the events would take place in Kansas, though some things did happen in Nebraska as well. Basically, gangs on both sides of the issue, border ruffians who were for slavery and free staters who were against it, engaged in intimidation, voter fraud, raids, physical attacks, and at least 56 political murders, though some estimations have it as high as 200. Many of the first settlers into Kansas came from slave states, settling whole towns that were pro-slavery. U.S. President Franklin Pierce, though he was a northerner, was also a Democrat and he thought abolition would be the downfall of the country, so he appointed officials that supported slavery. During the election for the first territorial legislature, pro-slavery border ruffians swarmed in to vote in large numbers, winning 37 of the 39 seats up for grabs. The anti-slavery free staters cried fraud and demanded that the territorial governor intervene. He found that 11 of the elections were invalid due to widespread fraud and called for a special election to set things straight. Eight of the 11 seats in the running went to free staters, but the pro-slavery folks still had the majority. So, when they all convened on July 2nd, they simply invalidated the results of the special election, seating the pro-slavery winners from earlier, and began passing laws to enable slaveholders to thrive. Free staters formed a separate legislature entirely in Topeka, wrote a constitution that banned slavery from the territory, and elected their own governor. President Pierce responded to this by replacing his former territorial governor with one that was a bit more amenable to slavery, and then said that the Topeka legislature was, quote, insurrectionist. A three-man committee was sent from Washington to the Kansas Territory to try and sort things out. Their conclusion was, if you only counted the votes of the people who actually lived in the territory and not the hundreds and hundreds of people who had been brought in over the border just for the election, then the proper legislature would have to be the abolitionist free stater one. They also said the pro-slavery border ruffian legislature was illegally formed since they had uncovered massive voter fraud. However, President Pierce ignored these findings and Congress declared the Free Stater Constitution to be illegal. Another Northerner who was on the Southern slaveholder side, James Buchanan, won the next U.S. presidency and officially endorsed a new constitution created by the pro-slavery government. This included a section that allowed any current slave owners to keep their slaves even if slavery ended up being outlawed in the territory later. 
This was approved by more than 90% of the pro-slavery legislators, but voting irregularities were uncovered again, which resulted in it being put to a popular vote, where it lost by 84%. So, a third attempt was made, this time written up by the Free Staters, but it went much further, extending voting rights to, quote, every male citizen, regardless of status or race. As a result, even many anti-slavery people balked. They didn't want slavery, but they also didn't really like the idea of black men voting. And this died in committee. So, still no constitution for Kansas, a fourth one, also anti-slavery, was written up and passed in 1859. But the U.S. Congress was dominated by pro-slavery men who postponed confirming this constitution. During all of this legal wrangling, violence had been increasing with massacres, open battles, and assassinations. When the new Republican Party finally managed to get their candidate, Abraham Lincoln, elected president of the country, the secessionist movement gained a head of steam. Finally, seven states declared they would break away from the country known as the United States of America. Senators from those states were immediately expelled from Congress, and Kansas was admitted to the Union as a free state firmly anti-slavery. Armed clashes would continue, however, along the Kansas-Missouri border all through the Civil War, but the new state of Kansas remained firmly in the Union camp. The 1860, the 1860 presidential, presidential election. election. Talk about an election that has long-ranging results. This one literally divided the country. After the 1857 Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford, which basically said that the rights outlined in the U.S. Constitution did not apply to black people, whether they were enslaved or free, it was clear the slavery issue would become the one on which this election hinged. Four candidates went for the top job. Tennessee's John Bell, running as part of the Constitutional Union Party, which was mainly Southern former Whigs who did not want to secede from the country. Democrat Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who was behind the popular sovereignty idea, but would not outright support slavery. Southern Democrat John Breckinridge of Kentucky, because the Democrats had split into two factions on the issue of secession, and Breckinridge was very much part of the openly pro-slavery Democrats, and the new abolition of Republican parties, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln wasn't even included on the ballot in many states in the American South. Breckinridge got the second highest number of electoral votes, 72, taking the most southern states, but only 18.1% of the popular vote overall. Douglas got the second highest popular vote, 29.5%, but the fewest electoral votes, 12 only carrying Missouri. Bell won Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia, giving him 39 electoral votes, but only accounting for 12.6% of the national popular vote. And as we all know, the winner was Lincoln, who carried the entire North plus California and Oregon, but he still only got 39.8% of the overall popular vote because the Electoral College is whack. Shortly after the election, South Carolina seceded, then Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and finally, Tennessee. Technically, Missouri and Kentucky also voted to secede, but pro-union governments in those two states refused to implement it. 
and part of Virginia in the Northwest set up their own pro-union government in the town of Wheeling, in territory that is now in the state of West Virginia. And so the stage was set for an armed conflict that would last a bit over four years and take 620,000 lives, roughly 2% of the nation's population. A modern-day equivalent would be a conflict that killed 6 million Americans. White League, League, Red Shirts, and the Compromise of 1877. As I said, the Civil War lasted just over four years, although it didn't legally end until August 1866 with a declaration by President Andrew Johnson, who had stepped into the role after Lincoln's assassination. In addition to ballot stuffing and voter suppression, angry white Democrats started taking up arms. Paramilitary groups began cropping up in former Confederate states, determined to stop what they saw as the encroachment of the black man. Just because they'd lost the war didn't mean that they had changed their attitudes and opinions. An election in Louisiana in 1872 found both sides claiming victory and certifying their own people until the federal government had to intervene and they recognized the Republican as the winner for governor. In the north of that state, Republicans in Grant Parish heard rumors of armed militia groups converging on them to force Democratic leadership, so they reinforced the local courthouse and laid in arms. A battle broke out on Easter Sunday, 1873, resulting in three dead whites and 120 to 150 dead blacks, plus another 50 black people taken as prisoners. Many of the blacks had been beaten to death, and some even had their bodies desecrated after being shot. This would become known as the Colfax Massacre. In October that same year, a judge and district attorney were ambushed on their way to court and killed. Pro-slavery sympathizers, including some in the police and army, did what they could to hide those responsible. A paramilitary group called the White League formed in Louisiana in 1874 with the stated aim of overthrowing all Republicans who got voted into office and preventing black men from ever voting. In August, at what's now called the Cachata Massacre, White League members murdered six white Republican politicians and 20 black bystanders. Later that year, they amassed 5,000 armed men and stormed New Orleans in an effort to kill or otherwise unseat the elected Republican governor. They managed to take the courthouse and held it until federal troops were dispatched, forcing them to withdraw. In Mississippi and both North and South Carolina, a group called the Red Shirts formed, calling themselves the, quote, military arm of the Democratic Party. They vowed to reestablish white supremacy. That same year, Rutherford B. Hayes won the governorship of Ohio by adopting a, quote, let alone policy that basically said people in the South could pretty much do as they pleased, provided they did not officially try to bring back slavery or try to leave the Union again. He pushed for this to become the official stance of the Republican Party. Perhaps emboldened by this, Red Shirts and various rifle clubs in Mississippi started openly harassing Republicans and their supporters, verbally and physically attacking them, and sometimes simply shooting them right out in the open. Since much of law enforcement was on their side, no charges would be brought. Hundreds of black people were killed, and when the governor, Adelbert Ames, asked President Grant for federal troops, Grant refused, saying the people were tired out on this issue. When it became apparent that he was next on the hit list, Ames escaped the state and the Red Shirts put a Democrat in governor as well with no election at all. 
1876 saw violence around elections all through the South. Red shirts marched in parades, killed hundreds of black people, 150 in just one week in South Carolina, and even managed to almost totally suppress all voting at all in two counties in the state that were black majority. But then the presidential election came round again with Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, the Ohio governor who said, ah, let them Southerners be, and the Democratic governor of New York, Samuel Tilden, who used to pile around with the Tammany Hall gang. What a great choice for the American people. There were, however, other candidates, one from the New Greenback Party, a center-left group who were against business monopolies and supported a paper currency known as greenbacks that would not be backed by gold. They were also for workers' rights and very into the idea of small farms and supporting the poor. Eventually, the greenbacks would merge with the Farmers' Alliance to create the People's Party, or Populists, in 1889. But in 1876, the greenbacks pretty much got nowhere. The Prohibition Party, who wanted to ban alcohol, also had a dog in this race, as did a small outgrowth of the old Anti-Masonic Party, now called the American National Party. But it was the Republicans and the Democrats who were the serious contenders in what would become one of the most disputed elections in U.S. history. So again, we've got Republican Hayes, who thinks we should just let the Southerners be, and the corrupt Democratic New Yorker Tilden. Tilden got 50.9% of the vote and about 250,000 more ballots than Hayes, yet elections in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina were all found to have irregularities. All three states reported physical intimidation of Republican voters, and in South Carolina, 150 black voters were murdered. Also in that state, 101% of eligible voters voted, which is obviously impossible and a clear indicator of some serious voter fraud. Another issue came up because of a new ballot design, which included paper tickets that had symbols on them to help illiterate voters know which ticket they held was for which party. So Democratic ballots in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina printed a picture of Abraham Lincoln on them, which would give freed blacks the impression that they were casting a vote for the Republicans, when in fact, they would be casting a vote for the Democrats. In addition, in order for ballots to finally become official, they had to be signed. In Louisiana, the person who signed them was the Democratic candidate for governor, and in South Carolina, someone signed them who wasn't even a state official. So electoral commissions ended up giving all the votes to Hayes. Four for Florida, eight for Louisiana, and seven for South Carolina. We're talking electoral votes here. But that did put Hayes still two electoral votes behind. Then in Oregon, which seemed to go Republican, the state's Democratic governor declared that one of the three Republican electors was ineligible and instead appointed a Democrat to replace him. So the two previous electors went ahead and put in their electoral votes for Hayes, but this single Democratic appointee put in one for Tilden and two for Hayes. I don't know what that elector thought he was doing. Perhaps he thought that he was supposed to cast all the votes and was being a stand-up guy by casting two for the Republicans and one his vote for the Democrats. And that single electoral vote would put Hayes over the top. 
This would bring the electoral total to 185 for Hayes and 184 for Tilden. This despite the fact that Tilden got 50.9% of the popular vote and Hayes only got 47.9% of the vote. And so for the second time, the winner was someone who did not win the popular vote. Yet, of course, there was dispute over these Oregon electoral votes since that seemed to be a little bit weird. And in Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, which also seemed to have some irregularities. Democrats cried foul and fraud and tampering and much talk ensued. And what would become known as the Compromise of 1877 was finally reached, which was this. Democrats would give up their claim on these 20 electoral votes, provided Republicans withdrew all federal troops from the southern states and officially ended the Reconstruction era that had started when the Civil War was over, basically leaving the Southerners to do whatever they wanted in regards to black people with no oversight from the federal government at all. Hayes agreed and so became the 19th president of the United States. Another stipulation of the Compromise of 1877 is that Hayes would not run for a second term. This would be the beginning of Jim Crow and segregation, which would plague Southern blacks for 88 years. The 1888 presidential election. Republican James Garfield won the presidency in 1881, but was assassinated six months after taking office. Vice President Chester Arthur took over, but he was diagnosed with Bright's disease and decided not to run again. The next president would be former mayor of Buffalo, New York, Grover Cleveland, who, despite being a Democrat, was what we might today call rather classically liberal. In fact, he won due to some people in the Republican Party who liked his anti-corruption stance, a group who called themselves the Mugwumps. And in 1888, he decided he would run for a second term. In opposition, the Republicans put up Senator and former Union Army Colonel from Indiana, Benjamin Harrison. The Greenback Party tried again, and so did the Prohibition Party and the Union Labor Party and the United Labor Party and the American Party and the Equal Rights Party and the Industrial Reform Party. Lots of parties. Fixing the way business was done in the country was very much the topic for this election, with protectionists pitted against reformers. The process was greatly affected by two corrupt practices, resulting in a third time that the victor would win the Electoral College but lose the popular vote. The Republican National Committee Treasurer William Wade Dudley, who'd spent a good deal of his career prosecuting election fraud perpetrated by Democrats, came up with a somewhat harebrained scheme to break a deadlock in Indiana. He told the party chairman there to group the floaters, people who commonly didn't really care one way or the other about who won and who would often sell their vote to the first person who paid them $2, into what he called blocks of five. And then he would put a man in charge of each block of five and make sure that all of them voted the same way, that is, Republican. And yeah, go ahead and pay them their $2 fees. However, the Democrats found out about this in the last weeks before the election and printed hundreds of thousands of copies of the correspondence from Dudley, distributing these far and wide. They also claimed candidate Harrison knew all about it and was basically trying to buy the election in Indiana. Nothing of substance ended up coming out of this, but there was a push for secret ballots to be printed for elections instead of ones always provided by the political parties. With these ballots printed by the parties, it would be easy to see just by standing by which party's ticket is being put into the ballot box, 
which was clear and glass-sided. In addition to floaters, Indiana also had colonizers. These were people who were paid to vote in large groups in wards where the desired candidate was behind, and there were repeaters who would vote early and then put on a disguise and go vote again, and sometimes again. Since there was no such thing as voter registration, this was actually pretty easy to pull off. All these tactics were put to good use in Indiana to ensure that Harrison won there. After all, he was from Indiana. He himself was known as a, quote, political tenderfoot and actually knew nothing at all about any of this. And then the British ambassador, Sir Lionel Sackville West, got a letter from a, quote, Charles F. Murchison, who claimed that he was an Englishman living now in California, and how did the ambassador think that he should vote in the presidential election? Sir Sackville West wrote back, saying he rather thought Cleveland had British interests more at heart than Harrison, and so probably Cleveland should go ahead and get a second term. However, this Charles F. Murchison was actually a Republican political operative named George Osgoodby. The Republicans leaked this letter to the Irish community, who'd been burned in the last election, and so they flocked to the Republican candidate. If the British like the Democrat, well then by gosh, we like the other one. Harrison ended up taking the states of New York and Indiana, and for venturing an opinion about an election in a country that wasn't his, Sir Lionel Sackville West was sacked. These were two of the four swing states that ended up deciding this election, the others being New Jersey and Connecticut. Though Cleveland got 90,000 more votes overall than Harrison, Harrison got 233 electoral votes to Cleveland's 168. But the shenanigans were so blatant during this election that Massachusetts House member Henry Cabot Lodge wrote up the Federal Elections Bill, also known as the Lodge Bill. This took oversight for elections to the House of Representatives away from the states who'd been responsible for this before and put it into the hands of the federal government. There would also be federal supervisors to oversee any congressional elections, provided 500 signatures from the local populace were collected. The supervisors would also certify the vote count, make sure each eligible voter only voted once, that no illegal aliens or non-eligible voters cast ballots, and so on. And these election representatives would have legal authority to request deputy U.S. Marshals to forcibly secure elections if they deemed it necessary. Part of the purpose of this was also to enforce the constitutional right of blacks to vote in the southern states. Jim Crow had thrown up a number of impediments against black voters like poll taxes and literacy tests when they weren't just, you know, killing them outright. The Lodge Bill passed the House by just six votes, but then it got filibustered in the Senate and basically died. And as a result, black people in the South would continue to have their civil rights violated until the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act were signed by President Johnson in 1965. The 1948, the 1948 Senate, Senate elections, elections in Texas, in Texas. From 1896 to 1932, the Republicans dominated U.S. politics. Then FDR's New Deal ushered in what's known as the Fifth Party System. The presidential elections of 1912, 1920, 1940 have been covered in that previous episode, but the Democratic nomination in a Texas Senate race ended up going all the way to a federal court, and it involved Lyndon Johnson. Johnson wanted the Democratic nomination, but many thought it would probably go to then-Governor Coke Stevenson. 
Two others were also in the running, but after an initial election, they were eliminated and there would just be a runoff between the two heavy hitters, Johnson and Stevenson, since neither one of them had got a majority. The Johnson crew created a fake newspaper called the Johnson Journal, which ran articles like, Communists Favor Coke! Donations came pouring in and Johnson greatly outspent Stevenson. Come time for the runoff election, Johnson won by 87 votes, the narrowest win of its kind ever. Stevenson's people said they found 202 suspect votes, of which 200 of them were for Johnson. This would become known as the Box 13 scandal. There had been many, many votes for Johnson, but all written in what looked like the same pen and apparently in the same handwriting. The people whose names were attached to these votes were interviewed, and some of those people said that they had not actually voted at all. But the Democratic State Central Committee voted 29 to 28 to give the nomination to Johnson anyway. Stevenson then went to a federal court where he won an injunction to keep Johnson off the ballot in November, but then a higher court ruled that the lower court had exceeded their authority and allowed Johnson's name to go ahead and be included on the ballot. So, Johnson would go on to win the Senate seat, then he would become JFK's vice president, and then president after Kennedy was assassinated. The 1960, 1960 presidential, presidential election. election. John F. Kennedy narrowly defeated Richard Nixon when looking at the popular vote, JFK getting 49.7% to Nixon's 49.6%. In fact, Nixon carried more states. He got 26 states, Kennedy only got 22, but the Electoral College is weird, and so Kennedy ended up getting 303 electoral votes to Nixon's 219. Many Republicans, of course, claimed fraud. Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, was known as a slippery fellow, and rumors of what had happened back in 1948 still lingered and echoed through the hallways of power. Kennedy beat Nixon in Texas by only 46,000 votes. Some noted that in Fannin County, which had only 4,895 registered voters, 6,138 votes had been cast, with 75% of those going to Kennedy. Hmm, well that sure seemed strange. In tiny Angelina County, which only had 86 registered voters, Nixon got 24 votes and Kennedy got 187. Curiouser and curiouser. And yet these allegations would turn out, in fact, to be not true. Republicans who cried foul in these two counties were actually cherry-picking their information. The, quote, registered voter numbers in both places were actually those who had paid the poll tax required in Texas at the time and did not take into account that there were actually several groups of citizens who were exempt from paying a poll tax. So, there were not 86 voters in Angelina County casting 211 votes. There were 211 people who cast 211 votes, only 86 of whom had had to pay poll tax. So cries of fraud turned out themselves to be fraud. Others blamed Catholic precincts in Missouri, New Jersey, and Illinois for Kennedy's win. In fact, Illinois is pretty much what put Kennedy over the top, despite Nixon winning 92 of the 101 counties in the state. 4.75 million votes were cast in Illinois, and Kennedy won by only 9,000. That's less than 0.2%. 
Much noise was made about collusion with Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, but again, subsequent looks into matters found no evidence of this, and if Nixon had taken Illinois, he still wouldn't have won. The state only had 27 electoral votes, and Nixon was 84 electoral votes behind. This was the second narrowest margin of victory up to this point in U.S. presidential election history. Only the 1880 election was closer, with the winner winning by a margin of 0.11%. However, some modern analysts argue that while it's clear that Kennedy won the Electoral College, you could argue that Kennedy lost the popular vote depending on how you want to treat what are known as unpledged electors. These are people who have been chosen to vote in the Electoral College but are not pledged to vote for one candidate or another until they actually cast their vote. I know, I don't even understand how this is permitted. This is not the same, by the way, as a faithless elector. A faithless elector is someone who is pledged to vote for one candidate, but then, when it comes time to cast their ballot, actually votes for someone else. In U.S. history to date, there have been only 165 faithless electors in 56 elections. Now, in 71 of those 165 faithless elector cases, the votes got switched because the candidate the elector had been pledged to vote for had died before the Electoral College convened. So, okay. So that leaves 94. One of those 94 simply refused to vote for either candidate. This was in the 2000 election. And the other 93, when interviewed, said that they had either made a mistake, had cast the wrong ballot, or had changed their minds. The largest case of faithless electors happened in 1836 when Democrat Martin Van Buren won against four competitors all from the Whig Party. Van Buren had won the state of Virginia, but all 23 electors got together and decided that they would go ahead and cast their votes for him as president like they were supposed to, but they would all abstain from voting for vice president. Again, it is unclear exactly what they thought they were going to accomplish by doing this. This meant that Van Buren's running mate, the Kentuckian Robert Mentor Johnson, got exactly half the votes he needed to become vice president, so he did not get a majority. The Senate ended up electing him to the post anyway, so this little game had no effect on the election. So, in all cases in which there have been faithless electors, not once has the result been changed by their actions. Illinois, Illinois in 1982. When Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Acts in the mid-1960s, another huge shift in politics occurred, where the formerly solid Democratic South switched sides to the Republicans, pretty much entirely over the issue of race relations. Weirdly enough, the Republican Party, which had been started to end slavery, was now the one that you went to if you didn't want black people to actually have equal rights on the ground. This sixth party system would be characterized by Republican dominance again through the Reagan era and all the way into the early days of Bill Clinton's presidency. In 1994, we see what historians would call the Republican Revolution, sometimes just called the Gingrich Revolution, when Republicans started really focusing their efforts on midterm elections and governorships. Later, they would start spending more effort to capture even smaller local positions as well as judiciary positions. 
But back in the middle of all of this, during Reagan's first turn, the Inland Empire State of Illinois had something of a banner year during the 1982 midterm and gubernatorial races. The recession was in full swing, which a lot of people forget about. President Reagan was not doing very well in the polls, and Democrats were poised to get some pretty big wins. Partly due to apathy. Only 27% of registered voters bothered to vote in the primary in March, and only 65% in the general election in November. While the incumbent Republican Illinois governor managed to hang on by his fingernails, the Democrats gained a majority in the House and managed to flip the attorney general seat. U.S. Attorney Dan Webb, a Republican, found he had federal jurisdiction since national congressional seats were part of the election, and he decided he would investigate. Democrats insisted their candidate for governor, Adelaide Stevenson III, had lost due to Republican funny business outside of Chicago. Plenty of allegations flew around various courtrooms about forged signatures, registering people to vote who weren't actually eligible, illegal use of absentee ballots, bribing voters, and even intimidation of both voters and campaign workers using violence and even weapons. Webb decided he would use a new tool, known as a computer, to find out exactly how many dead people were registered to vote or how many people were registered to vote in multiple locations. He determined that a full 10% of all votes cast in Illinois that year were fake. One incident found that a single ballot that voted the entire Democratic slate had been recorded 198 separate times. Just the one ballot. In the 27th Ward's 17th Precinct, he said votes were sometimes bought for a glass of wine or a cigarette from people off the street. Precinct Captain Raymond Hicks, a Democrat, told his workers that all the residents of a retirement home were crazy, quote-unquote, and that they should be instructed to simply punch 10 on their computerized absentee ballots, which would always result in a vote for Democrats. At the same elderly care facility, Webb also found one ballot nicely signed by a voter, but discovered that the voter in question had no fingers or thumb on his dominant hand and was unable to sign his name. And on and on it went. 62 people would get indicted and 58 of them would get convicted. A grand jury estimated over 100,000 votes cast in Chicago had been fraudulent. Plenty of people went to jail over all of this in what was the largest election fraud investigation in history. Adelaide Stevenson III still thought there was something wrong with the governor's race since he'd lost by a mere 5,074 votes, so he petitioned the state Supreme Court for a recount. But they refused, and that seemed to be that. As the 21st century began, things seemed to ratchet up fraud-wise. And to listen to some people today, you'd think that allegations of election fraud were all somehow new. This is definitely not the case. The takeaway from all of this is that, yes, there have been plenty of attempts at voter fraud throughout American history, and yet it has never really affected a national election though it has affected smaller, more local elections, governor races, and even some congressional races. Yet, because of all of this, certain protections have been put in place. And since all that nonsense in 1982 in Illinois, there really hasn't been anything worth talking about. 
As said before, some think the U.S. is still in this sixth-party system. Other people argue that the 2016 presidential election marks the beginning of a new, highly polarized political era, which some historians are calling the seventh-party system, and others are just calling the post-truth political era. It is one very much where if one side says it's up, the other side says it's down, and conspiracy theories are taken as fact or seem to be taken as fact. In order to fully understand all that, obviously, we're going to have to do another episode about all that sort of stuff, of looking at more recent allegations of fraud, which will set the stage for the 2020 election, the January 6th insurrection attempt, and maybe help us understand the political landscape today and what it will likely look like in the near future. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.